This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we'll be learning about the secret world of wasps with Syrian Sumner, who's going to share her book, Endless Forms, with us. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I am so glad you're here and we get to talk about wasps. Um, It's not a topic I thought I would get to cover on this channel. So I'm really excited that there is an expert on wasps and you're going to tell us why we should think about them differently. But before we dive into that, will you please tell us about yourself? Yeah, so I am a uh, professor of behavioural ecology at University College London. And I guess I I come from a a background of zoology and interest in animal behaviour and have also kind of integrated molecular methods to try and understand the sort of the welly boot biology, the work that's studying the behaviour of these different insects in the field. So my research combines a kind of field ecology with molecular analyses. Um, And I've always studied social, well, since my research career started, I've always studied social insects. Uh, and I began to began studying wasps for my PhD, um, and uh, I've dabbled a little bit in ants and bees and even termites, but wasps remain the mainstay of my research. Um, and so I've sort of inadvertently become uh, rather obsessed with wasps, and that's why I've written this book. <laughs> that's a wonderful reason to write the book. Um Could you take us back to when you were getting ready to enter college? Did you have a feeling you would end up studying insects? What did you think that you would do? Yeah, not at all. I have to confess, I mean, I was always interested in animal behavior and I wanted to study behavior, but I was very much more into bird watching and the cute furry mammals um, and certainly not insects. In fact, I was definitely one of those wasp swatters. <laughs> I, I wasn't into insects. I, was ne- I wasn't sort of an entomologist. I would actively shy away from anything that was a creepy crawly. So um, the fact I ended up, so my, my undergraduate degree was in zoology and all the way through my zoology degree I I would be interested in the more the vertebrates rather than the invertebrates Um, but then this PhD position came my way and it was on behavior social behavior it just so happened that the animals that were behaving were wasps Um, so I kind of accidentally grew to love insects 
in the book, you tell us that there are not that many scientists even who study wasps and that Darwin himself struggled to find a purpose for wasps. When you were doing your PhD, how did you find mentors and uh, research funds so you could undertake your study? That's a really good question. So I guess the point is that the um, a lot of the research funding, and this goes for PhDs and also for you know for bigger grants, it, it's to do with the questions rather than the organism, um, and the fact that it was wasps didn't really matter. Uh, the PhD was about studying and trying to understand the evolution of sociality uh, and why individuals would choose to live in a group rather than live alone and the evolution of altruism. Um, and it just so happened that wasps, these wasps, these hover wasps that lived in Malaysia, uh, happened to be a very good model for testing those questions. So at the time, I didn't realise when I started working on wasps, in my PhD, I didn't realise actually that wasps were the kind of the underdog of the insect world um, because I saw at the time I didn't think of them any differently to how I saw bees and ants. Um, in terms of mentors, I mean, again, it was I wasn't specifically looking for any wasp gurus or wasp mentors at the time, um, but there were some names that did immediately jump out to me when I started my PhD. So uh, that's what I like to call her the wasp legend, really. Um, Mary Jane Westaberhard, who's an American scientist who uh, who um, published some really um, influential papers in the 1960s about wasp social behaviour. And I would say that she has been instrumental in putting wasps in the kind of research limelight um, and taking them beyond just natural history um, to, to being a really, you know, an important model organism for studying social evolution. So I guess she was kind of my sort of guru that I saw, you know, from afar. Um, I didn't actually meet her until after my PhD. Um, and I ended up being able to work with her a little bit at the Smithsonian Institute in Panama as part of my fellowship many years later. Um, yeah, but there weren't that many wasp researchers around, uh, but it didn't matter to me at the time. I think the, re the realisation that there is a paucity of researchers studying wasps didn't actually dawn on me until quite recently, actually, when I started to sort of dig into um, more of the ecological questions that wasps could help answer. And I realised that there was a complete absence of, almost complete absence of literature on the on the roles of wasps in ecology um, and ecosystems. And then I started to look at, hang on a minute, all these conferences, these social insect conferences that I've been going to for 20 odd years. Let's let's have a look and see whether people genuinely don't like to study wasps. And lo and behold, you know, the, the number of um, uh, insect conference talks on bees and ants would far outnumber those on wasps. In fact, I've just returned from a, a social insect conference in San Diego. I'm horribly jet lagged at the moment. Um, and at that conference, 50% of talks were on ants, I think, and 35% on bees. It might be the other way around. I can't quite remember. But there were only 8% of talks were on wasps. Um, and so even now, uh, 20 years on, uh, there is still uh, a reluctance, maybe not a reluctance, or it's maybe just lack of opportunity, lack of funding uh, for people to be studying wasps, which I think is an enormous 
oversight. And I'm hoping that my book might encourage more people to to think more um, fondly about wasps and see the whole diversity of the science and ecology that these these wasps can, these insects can help us uh, study. I'm somewhat of a book nerd, and I know that to have a book get shepherded through the publishing process and end up in this in readers' hands, you have to write a proposal. You have to get someone to say, oh, yes, people will buy this. People will read this. And you let us know several places in the book that people are very excited to care about bees and learn more about bees. How did you get all the gatekeepers to say, oh, yeah, people will care about wasps. Let's publish a mainstream book on wasps. <laughs> That's a really good question. I never thought that anyone would want to, to, to publish a book on wasps. Um, I, I guess the way it's happened, it's been a bit of a, I never intended to write this book. Um, it's been something that has evolved and it, to the point where I knew I had to write it. And the way it happened was that as I got through my career, you know, the first 10 years or so in most of my career actually working on wasps, I've been studying social evolution and sort of very evolutionary kind of high level questions, which I think members of the public struggle to uh, relate to. Um, and I got a bit fed up with with people, you know, they could be people I meet at a party or just, you know, parents of chil- of our, our children's friends or, you know, whatever. Uh, and they say, well, why are you studying wasps? What's the point of wasps? And I didn't say, well, you know, wasps are really interesting. They have these really cool social behaviours. And they just weren't that interested in that. They weren't, they were like, oh, they just looked really nonplussed. Um, and then I started to give um, more talks, like to just to village halls of, of like women's institutes gatherings or local natural history societies. And I would my the, through this talk, I would basically start to try and pitch why people should care about wasps. And that sort of led me to think more about the role of wasps in the environment, because ultimately we value the facets of nature that we can see a direct benefit from. So we love bees, we benefit from bees because of their pollination. And in the, in the, in the case of the honeybee, we benefit from the food that they provide us with, the, the honey and the wax. Um, but wasps, you know, what do wasps provide us with? Um, and I started to look into it. And of course, I knew that wasps were hunters. Uh, it's just a basic part of their biology. But I was amazed at the absence of any substantial amount of literature on what wasps eat and what the impact they have on the environment is and and you know the the million dollar question is what would the world without wasps look like and there's this very famous quote which may or may not have been einstein that uh that is that if bees disappeared from the planet then humans would only have four years left to live um and that is often bounded around uh, and I think, you know, we could ask the same question of any organism, but I would like to put it out there that if wasps disappeared from the planet, how long would humans have to live? And I think that then makes people wake up and think about it. Um, and so by doing that, by giving these talks, it's sort of um, these are sort of layman talks, you know, to the public. It sort of took me down this new route of research, thinking about the role of wasps in the environment and ecosystems. And I realized that there was so little there that I started to do some research on it um, and then suddenly I had a, a I noticed the reaction in the crowds when I was giving these talks that 
when I talked about the soap operas of wasp societies and how amazing they are, a few people would nod their heads and there'd be a small smile. But when I talked about the importance of wasps and why wasps were nature's pest controllers and that in a world without wasps, we'd have to use many more pesticides and chemicals to kill the other insects that wasps eat and remove from the environment, like flies and aphids and caterpillars that are pests to us, then I could see people starting to sit up and take notice. And then I realized the light switched on. I thought, okay, this is what people need to understand. They need to need, need to appreciate that wasps are doing a really important role in the ecosystem. And uh, once people realized that, I found it was actually remarkably easy to persuade them that actually they should be giving wasps a bit more uh, kudos and a bit more appreciation than they currently do. Um, and so by giving these talks over a period of, few, of a few years, really, um, I realised that I couldn't change people's perceptions one village hall at a time and that I needed to... I had started doing a little bit of popular science writing as well with articles um, in a few books and on, on, on um, newspapers, and I really enjoyed writing in that way for a lay audience. And I just thought, okay, I need to actually write this book because I can't, I can't just be this sort of one-woman show going around village halls in England <laughs> telling people to love wasps and why they should love wasps. So that's kind of how the the original my my well p- pitching to myself right that's the first step when you want to write a book you've got to pitch to yourself you've got to be convinced that you've got that book in you um and so you know two, this is two and a half years ago now I guess I realized that I had this book in me and I almost felt like it was spilling out of me because I'd already been giving these talks and I, I knew exactly what I wanted to go in the book or so I thought um, so then I um, ended up writing a proposal and some friends introduced me to my agent, Will Francis, who um, was very encouraging. I was surprised that he was encouraging. But I think one of the other things that really helped persuade him and the publishers who ultimately um, uh, published the book was that I would say, you know, you walk into any bookshop and you are inundated. You can't, you're tripping over books about bees. And they could be books written by bee scientists or by journalists or by naturalists or nature writers. There is a book about bees to satisfy any kind of customer. And there's children's books about bees. And, you know, there's, there's, there's whatever, whatever book you're interested in, there is a book about bees for you. And yet there are no books about wasps. There are no popular science books that kind of bring the science of wasps, the natural history of wasps to people. There are a few sort of encyclopedic type books, but there are no books that kind of try and tell the story about wasps in the same way that has been done for bees. So there was a niche in the market and I had my personal drive and my personal pitch ready Um and it kind of just snowballed from there. Um, it was, I think my agent was very good at selling my proposal. <laughs> you tell us in the book that you were somewhat interested in insects uh, when you were very little. You take us back to when you were three years old and you were playing in the garden in Wales. Your, in- your interest was not um, wasps in particular, but you were interested in being on the ground and seeing the creepy crawlies. Can you tell us about 
three-year-old you in the garden in Wales. Yeah, I start my book with this story that, of course, I don't remember it because I was three, but my mum constantly reminds me of this story. I think it's 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 very much embedded in her memory um, of me. So we grew up in this, I grew up in this very small, well, I was, when I first was three, born, and, and I until about the age of three or four, I lived in this very tiny little village in the middle of um, West Wales, um, very very tiny and uh, the back garden was very wet it's Wales you know Wales is a very wet country um, but lots of you know in the countryside lots of nature all around me and I I would always be out there in my welly boots just sort of stomping around the garden um, and I apparently picked up a um, a slug and put it in my mouth and <laughs> I was a very greedy child I was quite fat you know <laughs> I like my food um, and my mum found me with this mouthful of this kind of gooey mess and she had to clean it out and I think she possibly still hasn't recovered from that moment uh, hence the story that I have grown up hearing all the time about the time I ate the slug um, and so that the I start the book with that but um when you write a book, I think what I've learned now, at least with this, writing this book, is that you don't start at the beginning. And so I wrote the beginning at probably at the very end. Um, and it just seems so apt to talk about this slug because I think slugs are as maligned as wasps are if in the invertebrate world. People hate slugs, um, probably almost as much as they hate wasps. And I started off my small life by eating a slug. And and then my mum's reaction was, you know, she was horrified that I would eat this slug. And obviously it was a big ordeal getting it out of my mouth. And um and I I I, you know, she definitely from then onwards, I think she was probably a bit worried about what else I might put in my mouth from the garden. And and I think that maybe is the root of, don't tell my mum, but I think it might be the root of why I wasn't really into invertebrates as a child. Although I had this passion for nature, um, I didn't really take any interest in the, in the creepy crawlies and possibly it was that my mum was always telling me to keep away from things like that once after the slug incident um but you know I think I think it was a nice way to start the book though because it sort of it brings it home about you know we're so influenced by our culture by our upbringing um it's not my mum's fault this that she possibly made me very invertebrate um averse it's it's that you know we we learn to teach we teach our children to avoid things that we think might harm them and she clearly thought that that, you know, eating slugs was not going to be good for me. <laughs> um, but I think we are taught, we teach our children to fear wasps. Um, you know, if you're sitting having a picnic or, uh, you know, eating outside and a wasp comes along, you, if you observe a family, they'll quickly be swatting it away and they're terrified their child's going to get stung. And children pick up on those cues. Um, so I think we learn from a very early age that wasps are bad. Wasps are to be feared. Wasps are going to sting you. They're really bad things. Whereas bees, bees are cute. You know, they might sting you, but they're probably not going to. They're more interested in flowers. And you learn that from a young age. And I think that is partly why I I think partly it's that's the explanation for why there's been so little research into wasps, because as well as um you know, the direction of science is obviously influenced by funding a lot and, and trends, but it's also influenced by culture. And I think if we are growing up 
learning to dislike and, and un, deep, uh, undervalue something, see something as having no value, then we are less inclined to be drawn into that as a research field as well. In the introduction, you mentioned when you were working on your PhD, uh, you write that you were lying flat on the jungle floor of a Malaysian rainforest with a wasp dangling above my nose. And I wrote next to that, please say more. So will you? <laughs> yeah, that was a bit of a wake up. So I, I um, so started this PhD in UCL, University College London, and um, as I said, I was interested in the behaviour and I kind of blanked out the fact that there were wasps. Um, and actually, I, I can't remember the narrative in the book or not, but basically I was tricked into what um, to, to doing this PhD in wasps by my PhD supervisor, who, Jeremy Field. Because um, I remember very clearly when he was interviewing me for the position, I, I said, oh, it sounds really interesting, but you know, I don't really like wasps, I don't want to get stung. And he said, oh, don't worry, no, they don't really sting. No, these wasps don't sting. Which, of course, is a complete lie. And if I'd known anything about hunting wasps, I would have known that he was lying to me. Um, but they do sting. Of course, they sting. All wasps, all hunting wasps sting. Um, and so I found myself. Um, so the project was actually a molecular project looking at the um, using molecular markers to uh, estimate the um, relatedness of brood in these social wasp nests and work out who's laying the eggs and work out how these reproductive conflicts over um over who lays the eggs are, are resolved and so a lot of my project was molecular um and i had to sort of beg him to take me to the field because in malaysia i really wanted to go and see these organisms in action um and he told me they didn't sting so nothing to worry about so i managed to persuade him that i should come to the field in my first year of my phd whereas actually it was only scheduled for the second year and so I was like, I knew I had to impress. I knew I had to sort of be super enthusiastic. And luckily, I absolutely loved doing the field work. Um, and that I remember that very first day, uh, there was Jeremy, myself, and our po the postdoc who was on uh, a grant with Jeremy, um, Gavin Shreves. And it was a bit of a pressure that I had to sort of join in. And Gavin had already been lying on the on the jungle floor with a wasp wasp nest in his face so I I just did the same and I was lying on the floor and I thought okay that's okay because these wasps are actually quite these hover wasps are quite um uh gentle they're very small societies they're little open nests so they sit on their nest you can see them um they're about uh, less than centimeter long um they do stink um, but they really only have very um, weak stings. And so their stings will only really penetrate your skin if it's a very um, sensitive part. So like, on, you know, the, uh, your wrist or your neck or something down. It, it won't sting you if it just wipes against you on, on your arm. And they certainly don't come at you. They don't fly at you. In fact, their main form of defense against predators is to simply drop off the nest. Um, so if you frighten these wasps, they all just literally drop like dead flies <laughs> off the nest and fly away. They're really hopeless. Um, so in terms of a wasp, they are rather pathetic. Um, and as an entry, uh, uh, as an entree to studying social wasps, they are the perfect way to start. Um, so it wasn't, I mean, the fact that I was lying on the, on the jungle floor with this wasp nest dangling above my nose might sound really horrific to somebody but actually it wasn't they were very gentle wasps and they weren't you know as long as they didn't jer move jerkily they weren't going to fall on top of me um, but they were literally a few centimeters above my nose 
was quite, and I do have a very strong recollection of just lying on this jungle floor, which of course there's lots of other insects as well in the litter leaf. So I'm getting lots of insect bites, which I previously would never have tolerated. Um, but I was lying on the jungle floor, sort of feeling like I'm going to do this. I can do this. And, uh, and it was when I realised um, that you know, we would paint the wasps individually so we knew the identities of each of the, each of the wasps, we knew their age and we knew their kind of role in the society. It was very much like um, a soap opera. I describe this a lot in the book about the soap opera, the interactions of these individuals um, on the nest. And I just got totally swept away with the drama of these wasps and I was personally attached to you know individuals. <laughs> it was ridiculous. Yeah. So I luckily, my determination to make the most of it um, resulted in me falling in love with them. So, yeah, it was fine. (laughs) I have to ask, though, how did your mom handle the news that you were going to go do this? I don't think she minded at all, as long as it wasn't her. I think she quite enjoyed telling people that her daughter was, she didn't call it the uh, reproductive conflicts in wasps, she called it the sex life of wasps, because that was much more shocking to, to her friends. Um, I, I think she just thought it was great. She, you know, she's always been one for an adventure. And uh, she was just pleased that I was I was doing something that I found that I enjoyed, I think. So yeah, she didn't mention the slug thing again. I think she was a bit shocked when she read my book. And she realised that um, uh, I brought up the if I started the book with the slug story. <laughs> you talk in the book about how the more you learn about wasps, the more curious you get that you have so many questions about why there are so many species of wasps and why they are so diverse in form and function. And you list long categories of jobs that, that wasps have, including farmers. But I would like to add to your list mad scientists. Can you tell us about the wasps that inject the caterpillars with the venom and the virus at the same time? Oh, yeah. Everybody likes to hear about that one. Yeah. So these are um, so so these are actually um, parasitoid wasps. So these are not stinging wasps. And um, so the parasitoid wasps, in fact, let's just backtrack a bit. So there are about 100,000 species of wasps and um, there are probably 10 times more that just haven't been described yet. So that's why we call the book Endless Forms, because there are probably more species of wasps than any other insect or possibly animal animal um, group in the, in the on our planet. Um, but about 70%, 70 to 80% of those wasps are non-stinging. Um, and these include uh, the parasitoids, which don't have a sting. They have an, an ovipositor, which they lay, which they use to lay an egg in um, a host, which is often a caterpillar or a beetle larva or a fly larva, um, and they are they their their ovipositor is often very long and dramatic looking. So if you've seen a, an insect flying with a, a very long thin what might look like a sting hanging out of its bottom, that is an ovipositor. It's not a sting. Um, and they use that, they they inject that into the, the, the host and lay their egg, and then they disappear. Um, and they the egg will hatch into a larva, and then it will end up eating the caterpillar uh, alive. Um, but when the when the when the and, and the when the mother wasp never goes back, she's basically there's no parental care at all. Um, but along with the egg, down the ovipositor, the uh, the parasitoid wasp will also inject a cocktail of venom and some of that venom will 
um, suppress the immune system of the caterpillar um, to ensure that it doesn't attack the growing baby wasp. Um, and it's also in, in some species of wasps, they have this uh, a very special relationship with a virus that they inject along with the egg and the venom into the host caterpillar. And this virus helps suppress the host immune system, which of course boosts, boosts the chances of the wasp larva developing and surviving. Um, and so it's an intimate relationship between the wasp and the virus. So they've mingled their genomes um, such that they've mingled their genomes to make this unique type of virus. But as well as preventing the caterpillar's immune system from attacking the, the larva, the virus also alters the composition of the caterpillar's saliva, which suppresses the plant's immune system and allows the caterpillar to grow faster. And that makes the caterpillar much more of a juicier meal for the baby wasp. So it's really amazing symbiosis. Um, but there is a, a sting in the tail here because the virus also sends signals to another type of wasp, another another parasitoid wasp, which comes, which is attracted in, and it uh, then lays its eggs on the parasitoid wasps, on the first wasp's eggs. And that, so that's a, called a hyperparasitoid. It's a parasite of a parasite. So you've got this caterpillar feeding on the plant, and you've got the first parasitoid wasp feeding on the caterpillar and then you've got this second parasitoid wasp feeding on the on the caterpillar and the, and and the and the first parasitoid wasp so it's it's an amazing so and, and the fact the really exciting thing is that it's the virus that the first parasitoid wasp has this beautiful symbiosis with this mutualism but actually this virus the virus is getting one back on the on the parasitoid by by drawing in some other parasitoid wasp <laughs> And you couldn't make it up, could you? You really couldn't make that up. Evolution is really incredible. I think that's why people like this story. You said it's a popular one to be asked about. It's got so many components to it that it's better than science fiction. You mentioned in the book that wasps are often featured in scary movies or science fiction movies, but the book kind of lets us know we don't need a fiction version of wasps. Exactly. Yeah. And in fact, there was one, one uh, uh, being a sort of a, a wasp, you know, if somebody, if, an, if a writer or an artist or, you know, anyone or a journalist wants to find um, a wasp expert, they just Google it. And often if they're in Britain, they'll, my name will pop up. And I had a, um, a, a fiction writer contact me a few years ago um, who wanted to, and he, I remember him, he called me up and he said, are you sitting down? Because this is going to be the strangest conversation you've ever had. And I was very, oh, this is a bit odd. Um, and he said, no, I, I'm writing this thriller and I want a, uh, I, I'm, I've got this murder victim and I want uh, their eyes to be bulging with baby wasps. And then I want the wasps to burst out of the eyes, the dead, the, the dead, um, the victim's eyes. And he said, is that, is that possible? Can it actually happen? I, he said, I know it's a bit far-fetched. I said, well, actually, that's kind of what a parasitic wasp does. A hunting, you know, a parasitoid or a parasitic or, or a hunting solitary wasp does exactly that. They would lay, I mean, not normally a human eye, to be fair. There's a bit of artistic license there. But the most of the, um, so along with the, the, the parasitoid wasps, uh, which lay their eggs in 
prey in hosts, the the hunting what the solitary hunting wasps, so not the ones that live in societies, but the, the ones that live on their own, which is about 30,000 species, um, they lay their egg, they will hunt some prey, so like a caterpillar or a spider, and they'll bring it to their burrow and they'll lay, they'll paralyze it. Um, and it will, unlike, as with the, the parasitoid wasp will keep them, uh, will, won't paralyze their prey. But these hunting wasps who have a sting, not an ovipositor, they've modified evolution has modified the ovipositor to be a sting um these was these hunting solitary hunting wasps are they have a, a, a venom cocktail that includes neurotoxins which will um paralyze the 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 prey and it also has lots of antiviral pro- uh, properties and antifungal properties so it keeps the uh, antibacterial properties so it keeps the prey as a kind of suspended living larder which is alive but incapable of doing anything and then they lay their egg on or in that and then in the same way as the parasitoid wasp larva um these hunting wasp larvae will ha- hatch and eat their living prey paralyzed prey um alive from the inside out um so this is a running running theme as you can see how that sort of story of um li- you know live li- eating the living till they're dead is kind of perfect fodder for a for a science fiction or a, a thriller um novel and you see in the book that wasps have been depicted by the gangsters of the inside as the gangsters of the insect world and as winged thugs. Some parts of your book seem to support that, but there's many things that that wasps do. And one is um, their interaction with uh, oak trees in creating the, um, the oak galls. Where I live, we have live oak trees that are protected, and the galls will sometimes, they'll fall off the tree, we'll find them on the ground. Can you tell us about the role of wasps in creating those oak galls? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because not so much is known about those. Um, so what the it, it's an example of how um, wasps can um, uh, manipulate plants. Um, so the gall wasps will lay their eggs on uh, on the underside of a, of a leaf or a, or a stem and that will induce and then they'll leave them and that will induce the plant to grow this hard gall um, around the egg and the uh, then the egg just develops uh, in, into a, a larva and it feeds off the off the plant within its gall and so the plant is providing the um, the, the the baby wasp with nutrition um but it's also providing it with a protective casing around it so it's effectively taking over the over the parental care uh, on behalf of the wasp um and it's really you know they're so common um but actually astonishingly we don't really understand how it happens and what the mechanisms are by which the the wasp manages to to manipulate the plant in this way and you give us examples in the book as well about how plants are also manipulating wasps. Can you talk a bit about how orchids do this? Oh, yeah. The orchids' story is just very beautiful. I really enjoyed writing about this. <laughs> so there are orchids uh, which mimic um, a female wasp. And so they look look like a female wasp. They smell like a female wasp. They feel like a female wasp <laughs> and they even taste like a female wasp. And so male wasps can't resist 
them at all. And they'll come along to these orchids and they'll try and mate with them and they mate quite vigorously. And by doing that, the plant will um, dab a, a, a dollop of, uh, of pollen onto the, the back of the, of the male wasp. Um, and then, of course, in being a typical male, once he's done, or so he thinks he's done, he moves on to the next flower and therefore he takes pollen from flower to flower. Um, and it's just, it's, it's incredible. It's just huge. I just love this, this sort of image of these males just helplessly swooning from flower to flower. Like, oh my goodness, there's so many lovely, sexy females around and they're just completely deceived, by, <laughs> completely deceived by the plants. It's just, it's a fantastic story. I really enjoyed reading about that. When we think of pollinators, the general public, we do think of bees and butterflies and you want us to start thinking of wasps as pollinators as well. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So the, the obvious, um, you know, if somebody wants to know what do wasps do in the environment, the obvious is that they're hunters and pest controllers. And that is, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's well studied, but it's well acknowledged. Um, but their role as pollinators is a little less well uh, acknowledged and you know there are there are some well studied examples like the pollen what uh, the um the males the male wasps that pollinate the the orchids and those orchids depend entirely on those that species of wasp for pollination um so that's a very um uh highly evolved um uh, manipulation uh, relationship between the plants and the wasp um, but there are and there are also some other types of, of uh, wasps which are uh, where they are really important pollinators and in fact there's a whole group of wasps called the pollen wasps the Massarinae, which are entirely vegetarian they're like they've done you know evolution has done with those wasps what it has done with bees so bees are bees evolved from what from a, from a wasp ancestor and so bees are i like to say bees are basically wasps that have forgotten how to how to hunt prey and instead they um they hunt in inverted commas uh pollen to feed to their brood and they rear their brood on on pollen rather than pollen and nectar rather than um than insect protein um and there is there is this group of wasps which actually isn't so small there's quite a, a few of them um pollen wasps which are entirely um dependent on collecting pollen to feed to their offspring and they're an example of a group that is very understudied um in fact i really struggle to find out much about them in when i was writing about them in my book because it's not something i'd read about before um there's a there's a, a husband and wife team in uh, south africa the guesses who have done pretty much the only work on these pollen wasps and it was thought that pollen wasps were only limited to a peculiar tiny bit of south south africa because that's where they they live but actually it turns out that they're actually quite cosmopolitan you have them in the states for example you have them in europe um, it's just that no one has really studied them but the guesses work has shown that these uh, wasps are are likely to be very effective pollinators they do uh, visit the flowers um they are they are very faithful to particular types of flowers and in fact oddly um uh, they seem to lose some of their body parts as well by visiting the flowers which no one really understands why um but the ultimate experiment which would maybe give us some even more reason to value these wasps would be to look at their pollination effectiveness so we know about how effective different types of bees are in pollen transfer um these groups of wasps the pollen wasps we kind of really need to do that experiment to find out what how, how effective they are um 
they must be pretty effective given that they seem to be quite faithful to their types of, of wasps of plants that they pollinate um, but it's an astonishingly understudied area so if there's any um anyone looking for a research area to dive into that's not very uh, densely populated at the moment it's certainly the pollen wasps um, but in terms of most other wasps um, oh of course there is the uh, the fig wasps which is another prime example of wasp pollination in fact that's probably the most famous example of wasps as pollinators and it's a standard textbook co-evolution story um, there's about 800 species of fig wasps that def- and uh, they are largely but not completely uh, faithful to particular species of um, of fig. So particular species of fig wasp will pollinate a particular species of fig. Um, and it's a completely, their, their life cycles are completely dependent. They're completely mutualistically dependent on each other. Um, so the way this works is the pollen, uh, the, uh, the fig wasp will, um, the fig wasp females, because it's only the females that ever leave the fruit, they will dive into a fruit, a fig, covered with pollen from their previous uh, fig, the nursery that they grew up in. Um, they will lay their eggs around the fig itself, inside the fruit. And as they do, they spread pollen from their from their um, their nursery uh, fig. And there we go, they're doing the pollination bit there. Um, and then there's some fun bits that go on as well after that. So the eggs hatch, and it's the males that hatch first. Um, and they are... The, the the brothers of the of the females and when the females hatch the males pounce on them and mates it's total incest it's quite horrendous um and then the males um will drill a hole out of the fruit uh, making their little you know pathway for their their mated sisters to depart by and so the female those newly mated females will romp around the fruit covering themselves in in in, um in pollen and then they'll exit the fruit and go on to the next fruit and therefore um carry on their their pollination and that is uh, the fact that there's 800 over over 800 species of fig fig wasp uh, co-evolved species that depend on each other is, I think it's testament to how how successful that story of co-evolution has happened. Um, So yeah, so there's the fig wasps, there's the pollen wasps, and there's the orchid wasps. But apart from those three, the idea that wasps are pollinators is largely understudied. Um, but actually, in a review we wrote uh, last year, in bio- we published it in Biological Reviews um, with some colleagues of mine, we went through the literature looking for evidence of wasps on flowers. Now, this is not, I'm not going to say that this is definitely pollination because you need an experiment to show they're actually effectively transferring pollen. But the fact that a wasp is on a flower will mean that they may be um, acquiring pollen on their bodies and carrying it to another flower and therefore uh, pollinating. Um, and so just to also backtrack a bit, so why should wasps visit, why should these other wasps that don't have this co-evolution or deception by plants um, visit flowers in the first place? Um, and the reason for this is very simple if you think about their life uh, their life cycle. Um, so let's take a, uh, a social wasp like your Vespula, your, your common yellow jacket wasp, for example. Um, the workers will go out hunting, they'll catch prey, they'll bring it back to the nest and they feed the larvae, which are their siblings, with this light, which this prey that they've chewed up. Um, but the adults themselves don't actually eat that protein. Um, they are, in fact, those adults are largely vegetarians. 
Um, and so they have to visit flowers to get sugar, to get carbohydrates in order to sustain themselves. So that's their main source of, uh, of, of, uh, of nutrition. And the same is the case for the solitary hunting wasps and also for the parasitoid wasps, that they, although they um, uh, interact with protein, proteinaceous prey, they don't actually eat them at all. Um, and although some of the hunting wasps might suck a bit of hemolymph, a cheeky bit of hemolymph from a spider when they paralyze it, um, but they basically, they're vegetarian, so they have to visit flowers. So all these wasps are visiting flowers. And what we found in our review is that these uh, these wasps are visiting any old flower. They seem to be rather generalists. I think we counted up to um, over 850 species of plants um, appeared to, to be visited by by wasps um, across over a hundred different families, um, and the diversity was huge. I mean, I'm no botanist, but it was just a huge diversity. They they pollinate, they visit these flowers from a, uh, whatever flowers seem to be around. Um, and so, the what some authors who've studied this have suggested that because these wasps are appear to be generalist in their choice of what flowers they visit perhaps they're really important in ecosystems for pollination now many bees tend to be very specific about the types of flowers that they visit um, and it will often depend on the length of their tongue uh, as to what how what kind of flower they can access um, but wasps don't do that they're not fussy they will visit any flower it seems and so perhaps in these degraded urban environments that we are increasingly creating across the planet um, where there is sort of you know quite ephemeral varied scrappy bits of flowers here and there wasps might actually be really important backup pollinators in these regions where perhaps the floral diversity or richness is not good enough to support good populations of bees so there is this idea i mean it's just an idea it hasn't been tested um, by by these researchers that suggest that wasps are could be really important backup pollinators so that is one reason to value them um, yeah, that's a lot to say about pollination. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's all fascinating. There was one thing about the figs that you um, were hoping to clear up as a misconception that vegans cannot eat figs. Can you talk about the final part of what the fig actually does with the wasp that's died inside it? Yeah, that's right. So people think, oh my goodness, I can't eat a fig. I'm a vegan. I'll be eating wasps. I can't do that. Or they just don't like the idea of eating a fruit that might have loads of dead bodies of, uh, oh, it's the males. You're eating the male wasps, aren't you? Um, that's, you know, that's not true at all because the fig produces an enzyme, phycin, which breaks down the completely digests the wasp's body. So I guess you are sort of eating a wasp because it's used, it must in some way get some kind of nutrient from that, some value of that. But it is, um, they're not eating wasps. <laughs> so it's perfectly vegan friendly. You've been to many places in the world and conducted various studies. Do you have another favorite wasp story from your own experiences that you'd like to share with listeners? Well, I often get asked what my favourite wasp is. 
And well, actually, most people say, I bet you haven't got a favourite wasp. That's a very silly statement, because actually, of course I do. My favourite wasp is um, a paper wasp that lives in uh, Central and South America. It's called Polistes canadensis. And it's about two centimetres long. It's chestnut coloured. It has a whopping sting. <laughs> um, but these are, the, I guess, after having done my PhD on these rather delicate you know, little fairy wasps, essentially, they're very, they're, they had hardly any stings at all. I graduated onto these uh, much larger, more fierce, um, real wasps, I like to call them, um, polistes, and I studied them in Panama at the Smithsonian Institute. Um, and I, I think I then, I got my teeth even further into wasps when I started to study these things, because they are, they live in these simple societies. I like to refer to them as like the insect version of a meerkat society so everybody loves meerkats uh we've all enjoyed david attenborough's films on on meerkats and how the individuals within these different groups have their roles you've got the sentries and you've got the reproductives and you've got the uh the nurses and the brood carers uh, not brood the the the, the, pup, the ones that look after the offspring um and actually these polistes wasps are just like that and polistes is uh, a genus that is cosmopolitan you have lots of them uh, different species in the US, for example, and they have been studied, there have been models for studying for social evolution and social behaviour for over 100 years. Um, and in fact, I think probably it's fair to say that Polistes wasps are responsible for putting wasps on the research map for studying them for social evolution. And this goes back to this Italian researcher, Leo Pardi, in the early 1900s, who did some founding work on Polistes, European Polistes, Polistes dominina. Um, but anyway, the wasp in Panama was so special to me because I studied it for many years and I was amazed that it did all, it kind of did the wrong thing. So most of our understanding of Polistes social behaviour was based on the European uh, Polistes uh, species, the very common species, Polistes dominula, which is also an invasive species in the US, actually. Um, and our understanding of how these individuals and the societies regulated their social hierarchies seemed to be quite straightforward. Uh, so all of the, just like a meerkat society, all the individuals in these societies have the potential to be reproductive. So unlike you know, your honeybee workers or your vespula workers, these, all the wasps in these societies can mate, can develop their ovaries and lay eggs if the opportunity arises. But in temperate regions like Europe, for example, um, they don't normally, the workers, the sort of the, the brood that emerge are, as the first generation, don't normally get the chance to uh, become a queen, or become a reproductive, partly because there might not be males around, because they tend to produce males towards the end of the colony cycle, or they just don't have, the, there's no nesting sites available. And of course, there is the lure of, um, of rearing your own, rearing, helping rear relatives, which you passing on your genes by rearing relatives, which is our foundation of understanding and, ex and explaining the evolution of altruism and helping behaviour. Um, and so we had this idea from the uh, from temperate polistes, many species, that there is this kind of age determined cue. So if the queen happens to die. There is only one queen at any one time. If she happens to die, it's normally the one of the oldest workers, one of the ones that's been around the most, which will very calmly step into her shoes and become the new queen. 
And that's kind of been the mantra about what regulates this sort of convention that regulates uh, polity social groups and social hierarchies. But in these Panamanian species, which actually incidentally had been studied by my my, my heroine, Mary Jane Stabahard, uh, many years earlier, um, she mentioned in one of her, her the- in her thesis, actually, that there's been these huge fights. So if the queen disappears, the wasps have a huge fight. And this was just not what we expect based on what we understand about um, European polistes. Um, and so I started to study that a bit and I was trying to understand. I didn't really believe her, to be honest. I thought, well, it's always an age-determined cue. How could she possibly have got this wrong? I think she must have aggravated them. Anyway, I did the experiments. So I removed the queens, uh, lots of nests, high sample sizes. And lo and behold, they did exactly what Mary Jane said they would. They had these almighty fights. Um, and it was often one of the younger ones that would become the new queen and in fact I did these experiments where I removed all the wasps except for an old worker and or, or a young worker and I found that all the nests where we'd removed all the wasps except a young worker the young worker would develop her ovaries, mate, and become take over that nest as the queen. And then the new brood would emerge as her workers. But on the nest where we left just an old worker, and by old I mean like 30 days, that's quite old for a wasp, um, they didn't develop their ovaries and they either disappeared or joined another nest, um, which suggested to us that these older wasps are somehow not able to develop their ovaries. So it's almost like an insect menopause if you like although obviously it's not menopause but there is something limiting their ability to activate their reproductive system that may be to do with age or it could be to do with the the early life experiences the kind of stressful life that they might have had as a as a forager um so there was lots of cool stuff going on and then so this is why i, I was in i they're my favorite wasp and uh the other reason why they're my favorite wasp is because uh we sequenced their genome uh, back in 2015, and it was the first um, hunting wasp genome to be sequenced. There'd already been a, a parasitoid wasp genome, Nizonia, but this was the first hunting wasp genome to be sequenced. I was quite proud of that. You mentioned a few minutes ago that 30 days old is very old for a wasp. And you talked to us in the book about how there is already a documented loss of insects in the world, and that we don't know enough about wasps. So we don't know how many species of wasp that we've lost, but we do know with what's going on with the environment, we are shortening sometimes the lifespans of the insects that have survived. And when you have only a 30-day uh, lifespan, there's there's no days or hours to, to shorten without having an effect. Um, what are your concerns about um, wasp uh, habitat loss and loss of species? Um, yeah, so I think the age thing is a bit of a misnomer, actually, because don't forget these are social wasps. So um, the reason that they only live for 30 days is because they get their foraging and foraging is really risky. And so they get eaten by predators or they get lost in rainstorms. So it's not something to do with human a- activity, though it could be swatted by humans, but um, their survivorship is low because they have a very risky life. If, you, if they just stay on the nest, they can actually live for about a year. Um, in fact, we've kept them in. We, in fact, we've published a paper where we kept them in the lab, and we called it. And they lived for over a year, and they just wouldn't die. And so we called the paper "Long Live the Wasp." <laughs> but anyway, I, I digress. Um, so, the uh, the wasp populations around the world. Yes, we have very little data. 
Um, and I think that that's a nice thing to draw back to, actually, the stark contrast with with bees. Um, and there have been a, a, a large number of really excellent studies in the last just two or three years looking at the uh, bee populations around the world um, and showing which species are declining and which species are not, because it's not everything that's declining. It's just, you know, there are winners and losers in this Anthropocene, this altered environment we're creating. Um, but nonetheless, something to be very concerned about um, in the abundance of these species. So, um the reason that we have really good data on bees is because people love to record bees. And uh, particularly in the UK, we have uh, the Biological Record Centre, which collates all of the data that amateur naturalists will submit their records. Um, used to be on you know, slips of paper that they'd post off in the olden days. They've been doing this for over 40 years. Um, but today it's all online. And through things like iRecord or iNaturalist, people upload their records of I saw species X in place Y on this date. And all that data goes into these large um, databases and then scientists can use those data sets to look at uh, insect population trends. And with in many cases, we have data going back over 40 years or so. So you can really see, you can start to see these trends. Um, and there are indeed very concerning trends there. But oddly, or maybe not oddly, <laughs> I rest my case really, that wasps are largely not recorded, particularly social wasps. Um, things like the Vespula yellow jackets and, and things like that, because people will see a wasp, but they won't think it's important enough to uh, record it. They don't, you know, they'll see a lovely bumblebee, they'll they'll stick it into iRecord or iNaturalist, but they won't do that for a Vespula. Um, I like to call it wasp blindness. I think we don't want to see them. And so we don't want to, we don't think it's important enough to record. Um, as a result, the data on wasps are, are very poor. Um, but there is a study that actually um, I was involved with a, few, uh, a year or so ago where we looked at um, the biological, biological records data. So these data submitted by um, amateur uh, naturalists um, who incidentally are the most amazing insect ideas in the, in the universe. And I bow to their superior skills. They're amazing. Um, but we also used museum collections from the Natural History Museum in London. And by looking at the species and modelling their, uh, their diversity and distributions, looking at their populations using occupancy modelling, we were able to look at how their populations had changed over the last, four, uh, last 100 years, actually, because this, this museum data took us back 100 years. Um, and what we found was that actually the Vespula population, so these yellow jackets, are actually doing fine, at least in the UK. Their populations don't seem to be changing too much. Um, and that kind of fits with what we observe and actually what we know about these insects, that they're very good um, at adapting. They're very good at um, establishing themselves in uh, novel environments. They are a, a highly invasive uh, insect, a alien species in um, in non-native areas. So, for example, um uh, Vespula wasps have been introduced from the UK to New Zealand and Australia, um, and they are incredibly successful there to the level that they are causing ecological damage. So wasps in the wrong place are definitely a bad thing. Um, but then that, the same could be said for any invasive species, really. Um, so these, what, these Vespula wasps seem to be very robust 
and uh, they're they're very adaptive. They nest in our in the we are almost you know we are destroying habitats they would naturally nest in because they would choose to nest in a you know a rodent burrow or something. But we're also creating habitats for them because they love nesting in our sheds and our lofts. So the Vespula was doing really well, um, and the Hornets are actually doing quite well as well, um, at least until the last uh, ten or twenty years. Um, in fact, their populations have increased quite a lot since the 1970s and that's probably a sign of um, a warming environment so this is all based on British populations but the the European hornet Vesper crabro used to be only limited to the southern parts of the UK um, but over the last uh, 40 years they have started to move northwards and therefore their ranges are expanding and they are increasing in in the UK um, and that, of course, is a product of our effect on the environment, these uh, warming, warming of the environment. Um, but in the last de- couple of decades, actually, we've seen a slowing of that. And what we think may be happening there is that we are, although we are, you know, we are improving the environment for hornets by making it warmer so they can expand their ranges. We are at the same time destroying the habitats that they need. So hornets will rarely nest in your house or your shed. They like to nest in rotting trees. Um, And so the more we destroy our ancient woodlands, the less habitat there will be for hornets. And maybe some of your listeners are thinking, well, that's not a bad thing, especially if you're in the States and you knew the stories about the uh, the Asian, uh, the giant Asian hornet, Vespa mandarinia. You might be thinking, well, we don't need any more hornets. Um, But actually, it's important to remember that hornets are really important in ecosystems in natural ecosystems so in their native environments they're really important as uh, top predators and um, they should be valued along with with all of the other um, insects in the environment and hornets are really beautiful and they're actually much less likely to bother you at a picnic i bet no one's been bothered by hornets at a picnic recently whereas they have been by a vespula wasp We're starting to run out of time, so I want to ask you, um, the book takes us through quite a lot of changes in wasp anatomy as they go through evolution over billions of years and how long they've been around. And it strikes me in reading the book that you have quite a strong love of the wasp, of their beauty, of all things about them. Is there a particular part of their anatomy or an adaptation of their anatomy that fascinates you that you'd like to share with listeners in the few minutes that we have left? Well, I think across the whole spectrum of the wasps, and if we stand back and we take the big view of wasps, which includes the parasitoids, includes the solitary um, the solitary hunting wasps, it includes the social wasps, but it also includes the original wasp, which was actually a vegetarian. It was a sawfly or um, a a horn tail or a wood wasp. Um, I think if you look across this enormous, phenomenal tree of life, and of course, if you remember that bees are just wasps that have forgotten how to hunt uh, because they evolved from wasps, and ants are just wasps that have forgotten how to fly, except for the sexuals because they evolved from wasps, then everything is a wasp, right? These are all wasps. And within this tree of of wasp life, we have all these incredible innovations. Um, So the innovations in terms of changes in their diet, so they switch from 
the sawflies, which would uh, lay their eggs in plant, which still do, the extant forms lay their eggs in plants, when the eggs will hatch and the larva will eat the plant. And then there is the innovation of uh, switching to eat, uh, to laying your eggs on a, uh, um, a, pre- uh, a caterpillar or a beetle larva. So that's the transition to carnivory. At the same time, you've got the innovation of the of the wasp waist. Um, so sawflies are quite dumpy. They don't have this kind of slender waist at all. They only evolved um, when parasitoid wasps evolved. And we think that the importance of this, the wasp waist is that it enabled the uh, the, the abdomen to reach around um, in much more intricate places so that they could get their ovipositor into places that they couldn't previously have got. So it gives them much more maneuverability. Um, And then there's the innovation where the the ovipositor evolves into a sting. And then along with that came the hunting wasps and the innovations with how their venom developed and the the cocktails of the venom, which we we haven't discussed much, but, you know, it's, it's another, I like to describe it as an untapped medicine cabinet there are so many things waiting to be discovered and exploited within venom of wasps um, and then we've got sociality um, which is incredible there are over 1500 species of social wasps um, and they display this whole spectrum of sociality going from these kind of simple societies and those meerkat insect type societies through to the vespula and the, the um hornets which are i refer to them as the the honeybee of the wasp world they're just as complex and phenomenal as the honeybees all the social behaviors that the honeybees have these wasps have that too so i i can't pinpoint one there are so many amazing innovations i i i've spent most of my career obsessing about sociality but to be honest by writing this book i've learned so much about the non-social wasps and the parasitoid wasps and the sawflies that i think there's i need several lifetimes to uh to to study it all. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here today, Professor Sumner, and telling us about the secret world of wasps. I wish we had time to get into venom and all the things we didn't cover, but I trust that listeners will get a copy of the book and they will learn even more. This has been The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.